Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel Comics series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're sailing past the century mark, talking Excalibur number 103, Bend Sinister, Reprise, in which the Ellis era reaches an appropriately multiversal conclusion involving a lot of kitties, Kurtz, and Peters. Excalibur number 103 was originally published in November 1996, and the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing, Carlos Pacheco on pencils, Scott Koblish and Bob Wyasek on inks, Adrian Lenshock and graphic color works on colors, Richard Starkings and Comicraft on letters, and Matt Idelson and Paul Tatrone on editing. Sandbox! You are my offering! People, your work here is done. Go home! Oh yes, he is the best offering ever! You will all have great weather and good crops! Now leave! Bullshit! God has horns. Welcome back to the end of another era, but we're starting out strong with great art and a few solid zingers, but who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. As I'm sure you know very well by now, I talk about sexy, gendery stuff in comics and pop culture in a bunch of academic spots and less ivory tower-ish ones, like at the Twitter account Sequential Scholars, where Andrew and I are probably still talking about Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey's Young Avengers when this episode comes out. My timing might be off there, but we'll see. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and in that capacity, I am loving how many Kurtz there are to love in this issue, and all of them except the 616 version have fabulous hair. I blame Amanda for that, but anyway. Moving on, I am joined as always by Mav. What's your multiversal mood this week? They don't all have fabulous hair. I mean, the Nazi Kurtz in this issue. So, oh, you know. God, I know, I know. I tweeted it and someone pointed that out and I was like, oh, that's right, him again. <laughs> they don't all have fabulous hair, but mm-hmm. hi. <laughs> um, hi, my name is Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. I am a teaching professor of digital narrative interactive design, University of Pittsburgh. I don't know what I'm doing this week as, as, as we record because it's summer and yet I'm still working, but I have no ability to do podcast time travel right now. I'm, I'm, like I'm not even sure when this episode comes out. Um, I'm, I'm probably grading something or perhaps preparing for the next semester. Or I got a couple conferences going up, a couple book projects. It's, you know, it, it's academic life. So, you know, mostly, 
you know, maybe I'm watching some movies, playing some video games. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been I've I've been drawing a lot. <laughs> you have like, been. You've been doing some doing, great art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, doing everything I can to avoid like you know my actual responsibilities in life. That's what I'm doing. So you know, on this show and another show called Vox Popcast. Yeah, I don't know. You've heard my intro before. <laughs> Thank you for that, Mav. Andrew, I'm a bit hesitant to ask what your mood is today, but um, <laughs> hit us with it anyway. Some shitty stuff going on at Andrew's school at time of recording, but yeah, how yeah. are you doing, Andrew? Yeah, uh, yeah. We had a thing that was. We don't know exact motivation yet, but it may or may not have been about trying to murder people who teach gender studies, and I teach gender studies. Yep. Uh, we should. We should. And- we should qualify that andrew is alive in case alive. you know because by the time this comes out people will have heard the news so yeah yeah i'm i am happy to be here though because i really like this comic and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into some gender study stuff as we tend to mm-hmm. do so it's nice to have that venue just to like uh-huh. show a bit of resolve um yeah my my things i'm dr j andrew demand a lecturer at st Charles university and co-project lead of sequential scholars please don't stab me i'm super nice <laughs> you're super nice <laughs> Well, that is obviously self-evidently true, but yeah, I, yeah, I'm giving a talk at the time of recording at the Toronto Public Library about queer superheroes on Tuesday, like a public talk, and I mean, it never occurred to me to think about my physical safety in in one of those kind yeah. of spaces. To be perfectly honest, um, which is a privilege that I have, I understand that, but yeah. Anyway, I'm just channeling my fury about it into showing even more pictures of queer and trans superheroes fabulously kissing. So that's what <laughs> I'm gonna do. I should, I should um, just, anyway, just just for for clarifying where we are in space and time, the same day we were recording, literally about three hours ago, my nation just outlawed the only reason uh, I even yeah. got to go to college. So you know that was that was useful. I heard about I heard about that too. <laughs> Lots of fun Supreme Court decisions coming down today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was. Uh, anyway, anyway, no, let's this, talk that's about... not, this is a good book. I want to talk about today. <laughs> yeah, book. let's talk about the comic. We all need a break, and um, I'm sure our our fabulous guest will help take our. Our minds off it. So the prime versions of us are joined this week by another scholar who I certainly hope isn't a doppelganger. The pod is delighted to welcome Dr. Daniel Stein. Hello, Daniel. Hello, everybody. It's good to be here. We're so excited to have you. I'll give you a little bit of a bio, and then we'll get into more of the fabulous stuff that you do. Dr. Daniel Stein is a professor of North American Literary and Cultural Studies at the University of Siegen, Germany. He's been researching mostly American comics since the late 2000s, with a special interest in early newspaper comic strips and superhero comics, and issues of representation and serialized storytelling therein. He's the author of the book Authorizing Superhero Comics on the Evolution of a Popular Serial Genre. Definitely want to talk about that today. And is currently finishing another book titled Strange Fruit and Bitter Roots, Black History and Contemporary Graphic Narrative, currently under contract with University of Mississippi Press. So Daniel, I've been a fan of your work for some time. I quote your work on queer superheroes all the time. One of my one of my favorite pieces on the subject. But uh, we need to get you to know you a little better as a first time guest. And we often do that with comics origin stories. So tell us a little bit about yours. When did you first fall in love with comics? Yeah, thanks so much. Well, first of all, um, it's great to be part of you, so, so thanks for inviting me to be 
part of this phenomenal podcast. It's really an honor. It's a great pleasure. And um, I, uh, I hope I can do justice to the high expectations, right? So that's, uh, I do my best. Um, I don't know if my origin story is the most um, exciting one. Like uh, many uh, people, they start, you know, I started reading comics when I was a kid. Um, we didn't really have comics in my house, so my parents weren't reading comics. Um, I have a younger brother, um, so I was, I guess, responsible for getting into comics. So whenever we, uh, I remember a family we visited like family friends um you know every, every couple of weeks and um, they had a, an older daughter who had like a comics collection but she wasn't in the house anymore so whenever we we got there my brother and i we raided kind of the treasure trove of, of <laughs> comics she had and we're just laying around happy not to have to talk to the adults right and and reading comics um it was mostly um franco-belgian stuff like lucky luke asterix uh, tantan and that kind of stuff which are like you know fairly long, fairly um, uh, kind of complex stories, but interesting characters, right? Humorous, kind of charismatic drawing styles. So that really kind of drew us in. Um, I also remember riding my bike to kind of the local, um, you know, newsstand and spending my weekly allowance on uh, what in Germany is called Disney's Lustige Taschenbücher, which are like funny mm -hmm. paperbacks that collect uh, Disney stories like oh, Donald yeah. Duck and, and Mickey Mouse. And I think in Europe, it's still a big thing. Like my, my son, who's who's eight, still like reads them, uh, you know, like crazy. Mm -hmm. Just compilations of stories. Um, they have new st stories coming out. So so that that was definitely a, a formative experience plus we had other friends uh whose older um uh, children were reading um or teenagers i guess were reading superhero comics so i remember stumbling across the occasional you know superman batman spider-man comics so um mm -hmm. i also read those and then of course as you get older um you know there's uh you know german stuff like ralf könig who's doing like gay comics which is like really interesting stuff um i also remember um getting into um you know, more Anglo-American comics. Uh, I think in college I discovered Mouse um, and that was kind of a formative experience. Mm. So there's, there's a lot, a lot going on. But I think kind of by accident um, or being lucky enough to know a family who's, uh, you know, had one person in the family who was reading comics and then being able to access this kind of collection mm. of comics. That's that's how it all started. That's funny how many people cite that as an experience. You know, somebody has a box of comics and that's how you get hooked. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, you got to start somewhere and just reading one isn't enough right and as a kid you don't have enough money to buy uh, you know lots of comics and you might not have parents who um are happy to buy you comics not like my parents were against it but they had no 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 real interest so being able to go there and just just you know picking one of the many and also reading stuff was just great yeah it's just are you lucky enough to have like you know some weird friend who has a shoebox full of comics or do you meet a guy in a mm -hmm. trench coat on a corner like it's literally <laughs> those two paths between goodness and badness right there oh my god only well, let me ask yeah. you. Let me ask you a little bit about your academic practice. You know, what sort of prompted your your academic work on comics? Was it always part of your scholarly practice? Um, it kind of grew on me. I mean, in a way, I was reading them um, when I started university and studying to become an American studies person. Um, and I didn't immediately make the connection, but I remember writing a term paper, like my minor was political science, and I had to write a term paper on a comparison of the German and American, U.S. American welfare state. And because that was kind of a dry topic, I remember using panels and strips from um, Breathitt's Bloom County to kind of spice it up mm. and kind of make my point. I, I might have lost some points on my grade, but it was, it was <laughs> great fun. So I remember I had this urge to, to get the stuff that I was reading kind of on the side into my academic work. And um, after doing my master's, um, I was in Michigan at the University of Michigan for two years. Um, and that was right mm -hmm. after 9-11. And I remember reading Boondocks, McRuder's Boondocks being in the newspaper and, you know, with uh, all the kind of the jingoism and everything that was going on to be able to read like 
Magruder's kind of satirical, very critical perspective on what was going on. Um, that was fascinating. So I, I realized, okay, newspaper comics might be something uh, worth getting into. And of course, there's, you know, guys all know this, but the whole history, you know, I would call McKay, Opera, Dirks, George Harriman's Crazy Cat. So there's kind of an evolution of of kind of getting deeper and deeper into this stuff. So um, Harriman's Crazy Cat was one of the first, you know, comic strips I wrote about kind of from an academic perspective. And I uh, remember coining the term comic modernism saying, okay, this is this is modernism too, but it's mm. in a different space yeah, than the kind of yeah. modernism. And it uses different, you know, it's a popular kind of modernism and a comic kind of modernism. So that was great fun. And then, of course, uh, you know, once you get started, of course, um, you know, superhero comics, but also, you know, Watchmen and Sin City and Dark Knight Night Returns, also Alison Bechtel's Fun Home, Chris Ware, you know, Satrapi Sacco. You know, I kind of, once I got hooked, I never really stopped reading. Yeah, yeah, I think we've all had kind of similar experiences. I want to I wanna kind of dig into your interest in superhero comics just a little bit by having you tell us a little bit more about your, your recent book, Authorizing Superhero Comics. So I'll set this up for you this way. So the synopsis says that the book, quote, identifies authorization conflicts that have driven the genre's evolution from the late 1930s to the present. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by authorization conflicts, which I know is a huge question because I'm effectively doing that horrible question that we so often do on this podcast where it's like explain your book in five minutes but i just love to hear you talk a little bit more about kind of what the thesis was for the book and what drew you to your particular approach yeah sure um i can try at least the <laughs> no the, the, ba- <laughs> the basic the basic idea was that first of all i had to uh, you know was i was um applying with with, a, with uh, my supervisor applying for a third-party funding grant and we had to you know develop a project on popular serial storytelling and superhero ah. comics seemed to be the ideal mm-hmm. genre if you think of like popularity uh, you know longevity it seemed to be like the ideal genre um, to look at and so i started digging deeper into superhero comics and when i read up on on you know people trying to tell the history of superhero comics oftentimes it was either a story told through kind of main artists or writers or you know also successive ages um sometimes also kind of a social history but i was kind of struck by the idea that the comic book you know on its own as a serial form kind of has its own kind of drive you know it creates its own agency or you know it animates people to write comics you know you have to continue to write it you know month by month it animates people to read it and to comment on it so the idea was to get away from kind of the standard approach to tell the history of superhero comics as a history of succeeding ages and to look at practices so so practices that serial storytelling in a way enables and that in turn have kind of helped to propel the genre kind of throughout the the decades. Um, so I looked at and I, and I used actor network theory and Latour, so all you know, kind of very academic stuff. But the idea was to say, since it's it's a it's a narrative that has to attract an audience month by month, otherwise it's discontinued. It needs to kind of interact with this audience, and it needs to consider its own reception. It needs to consider its feedback, and it needs to kind of create spaces um, of interaction. And these spaces of interaction then can be um, you know, conflictual, right? Because, you know, people read a comic and they have different ideas about how it should, you know, the direction it should take. So the idea is that these authorization conflicts, that's what keeps, you know, a certain series and also the genre as a whole going. So in the, in the book, I talk about letter columns and fanzines as a space that's that's not, not often systematically studied. And my point is that, you know, once you introduce letter columns as a space where people can articulate ideas, and of course, they're curated and, you know, they're, they're not kind of a fair representation of what people, people think but you get you get a conversation going and then and and expect expectations change and you give your readers a voice in what's happening with the stories um, and from that you have you know fancy 
decades, and you have the whole fan culture developing. Um, I had a chapter on parodies, um, suggesting that you know parodies are an interesting way of commenting on and also kind of negotiating the conflicts that you know the superhero genre automatically generates right you have like you know characters who want to be serious but then again they're wearing you know basically tights and and it's kind of a it can be a lame premise right so parodies if you think of the mad superhero you know super duper man and bad boy and ruben and all of that if you think of you know marvel had not brand etch and uh dc had in the inferior five so i looked at how these in a way challenge the genre but also kind of authorize it again because it allows people to laugh about something that they can take seriously at the same time and then i have a chapter and i'm getting you know to a close so i don't know if i managed to uh <laughs> summarize it uh briefly you're but doing great. I, have a, you're doing great. I have a thanks i have a final chapter where i think about what happens um in the digital age and how kind of a medium that's so tied to its materiality and you know people collecting and kind of going to flea markets and you know hunting you know for perfect issues how how, how does that change once you introduce digitality and digitization and um i looked at um kind of interesting publications that are called the Batman Vault or the Spider-Man Vault, which are called museums in a book that have kind of reproduced artifacts. So you can take out like like a, a program from a convention and hold it in your hand and it feels like the real deal, but it's a, it, it's a reproduction. Oh. So the idea was that in order to kind of reauthorize or keep keep its history current in a way um you know you can't just go all digital and forget about the material aspect but you have to find ways to kind of keep the materiality of the medium but of course there's bob kane and stan lee and jack kirby steve ditko alan moore they're all in there too but not in the sense of kind of a succession of great artists but more how Kirby, Ditko, and Lee, how, how questions of originality and also of, of um, kind of claiming ownership to a character like Spider-Man, how that also shapes how we understand the genre. I think yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's longish, but uh, I tried. <laughs> no, you did an excellent job with that. And I love that approach to it, you know, like talking about sort of those encoding and decoding practices, because, yeah, I mean, we're still kind of developing a language for comic studies so much of the time where we're importing ways of talking about texts from other fields like literature, like film, like television studies, like so many other things. And yeah, I always like when a book like yours comes along that proposes, you know, is there another way that we can do this? Is there another way that we can sort of incorporate stuff from other fields, but create something that really works for this genre, this medium, this way of telling stories? So yeah, I really appreciate that. And that was a great summary of what you do in that. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. I... People, people should go check it out. <laughs> Definitely. It's worth it. It's long though, but it's worth <laughs> it, I think. It's, that it's, one way of putting it is that it's long. Another way of putting it is that it's worth every penny because okay, yeah, much content. you're right, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, um, I want to talk about this comic specifically, so let's do the issue summary, and then we'll come right back to you for some first impressions on this one. I have no idea how you're going to react to being dropped into this particular issue. I was like, maybe it's sort of standalone, maybe not. I don't know. Anyway, we'll talk about it. So I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We definitely don't need the threat of death or the rushed conclusion of a twenty issue of comics to tell you that we love you. To prove it, here's a small token of our affection in the form of a plot summary. Excalibur number 103 opens with perennial point-of-view character Kitty Pride waking up. She notes the mess Pete Wisdom made of her room, then looks out her window except it isn't her window. Rather than the Scottish coast, she sees a cobbled street lined with houses. She runs into the corridor and runs into Piotr Rasputin. But it's not Piotr Rasputin, or at least not her Piotr Rasputin. This Piotr is old and balding, and as he turns to Kitty, he tells her she looks so young, but that she is dead. They are 
all dead. Kitty navigates a newly zany corridor back to her room and manages to throw on her superhero colors before Kurt bursts in, the real Kurt this time. He and Kitty observe numerous doppelgangers of themselves in the courtyard below, many of them seemingly raring for battle, and that's where they find their colossus, battling another doppelganger. They wander the world encountering various versions of themselves who seem to have been there longer and adjusted to being there, or maybe given up trying to escape. Kitty buys a map from a doppelganger of herself and deduces they're trapped in the nine circles of hell, and that they can't fight their way out. They need to use their noggins. Kitty confronts her anger issues, Piotr similarly describes his character growth, and Kurt confronts the toll leadership has taken on him. In turn, the doppelgangers of all three vanish. Kitty reveals their foe was Belasco, and Belasco reveals himself to the readers, if not the team, along with Margali Spardos, suspended in a cage above a fiery pit. Having passed this initial test, or whatever this was, Kitty, Piotr, and Kurt poof back to Muir Island, where they're greeted with hugs and kisses, and the Ellis era ends exactly where Ellis wants it to, with Kitty Pride and Pete Wisdom declaring their undying love. And we'll come right back to you, Daniel, with those first impressions. So Daniel, as I said, um, I don't know what your reaction is going to be being dropped into this particular issue, so I'll just keep it broad. First reactions to reading this comic, did it make sense? Were there stuff that you liked? Is there stuff you're particularly eager to talk about? The floor is yours. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, also for allowing me to, to kind of go first and kind of dive in uh, dive in without uh, you know further ado. I have to admit, kind of a disclaimer, I, you know, I hadn't been really familiar with the series and I hadn't read this issue, so it was really um, the first time I encountered this um, in detail. And as a first-time reader, I'm probably not the ideal reader, right? I'm not not the reader that Warren Ellis and the people who are working on this yeah. had in mind because, I mean, the series had been going on for more than 100 issues, right? I think Ellis was working on it since issue, I don't know, 82 or something. So, you know, he had some time to kind of build up something. Um, so it was disorienting at first, at least a little bit, but then again, that's in a way to be expected, right? If it's a good series that tells a story that's ongoing, if you kind of start in the middle and everything's perfectly clear, then things have to be terribly redundant for the people who've been following the series for a while. So it didn't surprise me that it took a while kind of to figure out what's what's going on. There's there's an interesting scene where Kitty Pride says at some point uh, pretty early on that, you know, this is not the island that, they, that they're used to. And then um, uh, the narrative box says, as if you needed telling right so uh, you know it's, <laughs> yeah. it's kind of a reference to the people who've been following the story who you know would have figured it out um, on their own I needed <laughs> to be told so I was yeah. uh, kind of thankful for that but it acknowledges kind of the the, the relationship that the the comic has kind of built with with its readers um, over um, a while and um, what I liked about it and what helped me get into the story was that the characters in a way are thrown into kind of an unfamiliar situation basically mm -hmm. like I was right so they have to they're confused over where they are and you know who is who and whether they're their kind of friends and partners are you know who they seem to be so kitty at some point says um, it's a logic trap there's a point to this a logic that currently escapes us right and I thought okay there might be a logic um, in a way that, <laughs> that I that I'm struggling to find but then again the idea of kind of multiple superheroes copies and fakes right is is not entirely new to the idea of superhero comics so i i realized that this was kind of a, a play on this i did read um uh, after i'd read this this issue i read them um, the two preceding ones and the ones that follow and i think this one does stand out so 103 is somewhat remarkable right it does it seems to be you know a, a little more special than, than the others it doesn't seem to kind of fall perfectly in line, which is probably intentional. Anyway, I think we can definitely talk about that, and you guys might want to talk about that. But of course, there's also um, like lots of engaging artwork, right? Interesting coloring. I like the page design and the panel spacing. It kind of keeps changing. Um, there's go some gorgeous splash pages where the different different nightcrawlers are shown. Um, 
So it's some cool artwork and an interesting story with what seems to be a happy ending, which is all is yeah. kind of funny because in a serial story, of course, um, the end is always kind of only taking a breath until the next installment. But this kind of comes come, has some sense of closure at, at the end. So that was that was that was fun to read as well. Yeah, it's got kind of such a such a cute ending, actually. Well, depending, I guess, on your mileage on the Kitty and Pete <laughs> relationship, but still, but still, I'm not mad at it in this one instance. But like. Again, like I thought it was sort of a funny issue to give you because I could see how you might read this and like be like, oh, I'm sure this is sort of a build up of all of this stuff, but it it kind of isn't. It's kind of like a standalone issue that's just a little thought experiment about these characters. So like I think having the context of the characters helps. But like yeah, exactly as you're saying, right? I mean, it's mirroring the experience of you being dropped into it. So I was like, I think we could work with this. It'll be okay. Yeah, I, th- I think it worked well. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you're supposed to be disoriented. So <laughs> let me pick up some first impressions from from andrew and mav uh, i'll let you take a crack at it first andrew i think you said that you liked this issue when we, when we were doing intros am i correct yeah uh i mean pacheco helps so much yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> but um I, th- I think for me we have the right guest and it's good to have daniel here to talk about this because the concept is really cool the idea mm-hmm. of inhabiting a world with versions of yourself that made different maybe even choices that's a good character building concept uh and i think that gives ellis a lot that he can do i don't think it's perfect i don't think he always seizes the opportunity um but this is a really good issue for him to reflect some character growth um and uh, again the, the sort of logic puzzle approach creates a nice little bit of mystery th- th- this is working pretty well for me as i said not perfect but I-, I like what he's going for yeah like some of the choices of doppelgangers i'm just like i don't know if they're interesting but anyway we can get yeah. into it mav how are you feeling like it um, as a way to end off a series or, you know, a run, I guess, because the series will continue without Ellis. I, I feel very similar to what Andrew said. I feel very similar to what you said. I, I think it's amazing that Daniel's like, oh, whoa, there must be stuff that like um, that I'm missing that, you know, no, not so much. I mean, it's just this is barely anything <laughs> compared to what 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 um what he'd been doing. It's just sort of a, hey, I want to tell this little x-men story x-men story before i leave and here it is and yeah okay sure there's other members of the team but i don't care this is my last one these are the three characters i care about and that's what i'm gonna do and you know i i care about those characters too and i think it's well written so you know sure like logic we'll talk about it but logically nothing here makes sense um there's I, no I, don't under, I don't Thank understand you. the circles of hell thing i really was like tried don't, i don't understand it yeah i don't care it was it was it was interesting it was a nice use of i mean obviously like andrew said pacheco will always help it doesn't matter you know you know mm-hmm. but also like the characterization seeing these you know lifelong friends at this point kurt kitty and and peter basically get to interact with each other and sort of do a you know i don't know what's going on but i'm just gonna rely on my x-manness and like my friends are here and we're gonna do the x-man thing and we're gonna and we're gonna figure it out they even like kurt even says you know my life is this it's tuesday so i'm okay we're in another dimension sure (laughs) <laughs> you know, some, you know. some great lines in that book yeah. that's like kurt's line that's like yeah. if i'd lived a normal life i'd probably be freaking out but since i've lived an utterly <laughs> ridiculous life it's yeah, all good this, is, this just happens sometimes sometimes i wake up and there sometimes i wake up and me and my friends are in another dimension which is inhabited solely by thousands of us yeah that you know mm-hmm. that happens yeah, exactly 
he says, I'd have to say that we're apparently surrounded by alternate timeline versions of ourselves, right? He's very, <laughs> very explicit, al almost like the reader. You're figuring out, okay, that's probably alternate timeline versions of ourselves. But he's, he's saying this, as you suggested, that he's looking back over his life. He says, I've had an utterly ridiculous life, which is interesting if you think of, you know, Ellis kind of finishing his run and kind of looking back, mm -hmm. kind of a retrospective um, thing. That's, that, that made perfect sense. To me, I was hoping that you guys could explain the nine circles of hell, but apparently, oh, uh, no I'm just just as thrown as you are. <laughs> well, I mean, let's I, I talk mean, about that now, right? I, I mean, it doesn't read, it doesn't make enough. any sense, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yes, I've read Milton and Dante, and I mean, I like I know, like I've read other stuff that has nine circles of hell. So that. <laughs> well, I mean, just yes. every like Kitty is the one that realizes it, and then Kurt doesn't get it, and I'm like, well, he's the one that's Catholic and she's yeah. Jewish, and I'm thinking about this too much now. He was in <laughs> In Nightcrawler's Inferno, too. Like, there's an entire annual, yeah. book, and Margali's in it, and Amanda's in it, and it I doesn't know. seem to come up. No, it, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's odd. It's odd. But, but in a way, it seems to be her issue in a way right it starts with her and she's the first one kind of we share the perspective with right and it's also i think when I mean, there's a kiss at the end but she's also the one who has something um about you know what's what's going to come eventually so i think she gets the first word in a way and the last one so it seems to be i mean it makes sense that she's the one who's figuring out things but mm -hmm. maybe it's not not really plausible but if you think of this as a story you know we see her like kind of lying in bed looking at her and then we mm -hmm. share her view where she's looking at the island and saying oh this isn't real so it seems to be I felt kind of closest to her perspective when I was reading this. I don't know how you felt. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we've talked about the history of Kitty as a point of view character before on the pod. And I do think, yeah, going back to her as the point of view character for this last issue of Ellis's run feels very significant. And I do I do really love this as a Kitty issue in terms of we see all of Kitty's skills at work, right? I love her seeing her like use her smarts, which is great. And she's the one that figures it out while these two dumb boys are just punching stuff. I I like it <laughs> like I mean we've had issues sometimes with him making Kitty a little bit too naive in just certain moments but in terms of like a showcase for what she can do as a point of view character and some of her skills I I, I pretty much like this I'm not complaining about it I like it because it is so we've talked a lot about wisdom being Ellis's you know his Mary Sue, you know, <laughs> he, he is Pete wisdom is Ellis's author insert. That is just like, I am coming out of nowhere and now I'm best friends with everybody and I'm dating the, the, the head cheerleader, you know, that's, that's been problematic before. And I understand why some people have find it probably I'm ignoring Ellis's real life problems. I'm saying, I understand why some people are turned off when an author Ellis or anybody else does this sort of thing. But I think it's also important to note that, you know, Warren Ellis was born in 1968. When Warren Ellis turned 12, they invented Kitty Pride. And now he is, you know, at time of writing this, he's like 27, right? Like, so, so like, this is basically the character that was created to be his reader surrogate. He grew up with her and now he's getting to write her. And this is the swan song. And this is his, his love letter to who is, who is clearly his favorite X-Men. Like that's what he's doing. And for better or worse, she, you know, how you feel about Ellis, the person, this is him saying, look, I got to live my dream of writing my fantasy girl from when I was 12. And this is how I see her. And that's, 
it shows there's love in the character in this in, in yeah. this particular and issue she, and she's got some great moments i mean mm-hmm. again i love seeing her logic through it <laughs> i like the thing at the beginning where she's like i'm not doing this in my night shirt i got to get my uniform on yeah, yeah. like yeah. like a bunch of those little moments throughout the comic mm-hmm. uh, let's talk a little bit more about doppelgangers because i'd love to get daniel's kind of take as on that as a convention you won't know this daniel but early on in excalibur we had a lot of multiversal sh- shenanigans it's kind of how this series started and it used to very much be the identity of this book and it has been much less the identity of the book in kind of the second half of the run but still it's a topic that we talked about before in terms of you know what do doppelgangers do for us rhetorically right you know when we have an alternate version of a superhero interacting with the quote-unquote main version of the superhero how does that help us understand that main version of the superhero and you know sometimes it does sometimes it doesn't sometimes it's just an excuse to do a fun cool visual or design a new costume or whatever we've had we've had we've had all those different versions of them but in the, the convoluted question i'm trying to ask here is just it got me thinking about your project your book project you know the authorizing superheroes thing and how the meanings of these characters are sort of interactions between fans and creators and and all these different kind of registers and yeah i just thought in light of some of that it might be an interesting question to put to you about you know what kind of discourses do you find come up when we have these doppelgangers of characters like do you find this an interesting technique in the space to comment on some of those things kind of like the multiplicity of meanings perhaps in the superhero space convoluted question i'm sorry i'll give you a convoluted answer and then (laughs) if you want well first of all i think what you said about um um kind of the, the the I don't know authentic original kind of prime characters meeting kind of mm-hmm. their alternatives that also becomes explicit in, in the comic right when Kitty says um, think about differences and think about kind of basically who you are and what makes you unique and then and then that's how she tries to solve the riddle so in a way it's also a way of getting rid of these doppelgangers right and then yeah, in a way yeah. of, of um, you know you create I mean it's a basic it's a basic structure or a basic phenomenon of serial storytelling when you tell a story serially you'll build up characters and you'll add characters and you might add worlds and you might add alternative versions because you have to please an audience that has different ideas or you have you know different writers have different styles and so forth so you you keep adding in a way and making things more kind of convoluted or more complex but at some point it's gonna kind of kill the readability or it's gonna get confusing so in a way you need to you need to condense things and and kind of go back to a certain Kind of streamline things perhaps and i think that's what what's happening in a way at least a little bit in this comic so um one thing that i argue in this book is that there's basically kind of two dynamics when you think about these serial stories one and i basically just already said this but one is like sprawl diversification multiplication um, proliferation you know transmedia spread all of that and the other one would be um canonization um you know, archiving things, putting things into anthologies, um, making lists of the best, uh, whatever. So trying to kind of kind of contain this sprawl or kind of rein in the sprawl again. And I think this story here, um, in a way, at least addresses this to some extent. It could also be, in a way, if you think of, I mean, I don't want to psychoanalyze um, more analysis here, but maybe it's also yeah. a way of... <laughs> uh, Go for it. Please do. We have on this podcast before. Okay. He can well, use it. <laughs> yeah, uh, offering free advice here. Well, I mean, maybe you know it it could be in 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 a sense of kind of acknowledging that there's kind of you know diverse versions of these characters and that they have been before he you know kind of took on um, his run and they will be after he's left but he's condensing these characters um you know to their 
I don't know, to their essence might be a little um, pathetic, but he's, he's trying to work out, you know, kind of, I think one of you said kind of character growth and making us kind of understand that these are real characters kind of with real lives and, and real ideas and relationships to each other. And all the others are kind of, I don't want to say phony, but but maybe, maybe they are, right? They're, they're just not the originals. Um, so it's also a way of perhaps leaving the series by kind of staking a claim and saying, you know, this, this is my real version. There might be other versions, but my version of the characters might be, I don't know, it might not be the best, but but those are his versions. So that might be, you know, it's, it's also a way of kind of self-positioning and acknowledging this multiplicity, but, but then also saying there's something about these characters that 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 um, is important to me, perhaps. I don't know. That's, yeah. that's an attempt. No, I, I was I thinking mean, a lot of similar things. Anyway, yeah, go ahead, Andrew. I was going to say, just to, to add a little bit to, to the point there, I think we have to acknowledge that when you do this kind of um, multiple universe intersecting type story in Excalibur, that has to harken back to the lacrosse time era, right? Uh, that mm-hmm. kind of goofy Claremont Davis thing. So you could read that metatextually as well as the idea of Ellis kind of moving beyond that. Yeah, I was curious about that as well, too, because it feels like an homage to, you know, the most iconic Mm -hmm. storyline in Excalibur, which is the cross-time caper. Yeah, I was also really, really struck by what Daniel was saying, because it it really resonated with what I was thinking about, too, in terms of this being Ellis's final issue and staking a claim on these characters while also sort of acknowledging that the multiplicity will always exist beyond you. I don't know. It's such a weird experience being not that i've had this experience but i imagine it must be a very weird experience being the work for hire creator in these spaces where the characters become yours for a while and then you have to say goodbye to them and then they become someone Mm. else's characters and there's always got to be such a weird emotionalism to that and of course many creators including claremont very memorably have spoken of kind of the the pain of that when you become very attached to these characters that become yours for a while and yeah i just thought this was such an interesting premise for his final issue of the series to be commenting on some of those tensions i mean even if not directly but it's just inherent in the plot right we're asserting the real version of these characters against all of these doppelgangers that they have to defeat and overcome and sort of blink out of existence in order to assert the true versions of themselves and that (laughs) i don't know just i mean especially as his last issue on the series it feels like a deliberate choice so i'm with you there yeah it also Mm -hmm. makes sense i mean this this is the subtitle is reprise right so the idea is in a way that that you kind of take stock or you kind of i don't know as as at the end of a theater play right you bring out all of the actors or you know you kind of you know you have this image of all you know of different versions and of different things and you recapitulate perhaps to an extent and then you hand it off to somebody else yeah yeah um maybe i'll i want to talk about some of the specific doppelgangers and whether they do anything valuable for us and maybe i'll come to you with it first mav you know did you like any of these doppelganger interactions did you find it a meaningful way to to push some of these characters forward or even you know we haven't talked about sort of the conclusion of the logic puzzles for the various characters which i think some are better than others but i'll give you first crack at it if you want yeah i don't know i don't know that i can call it meaningful right i find it interesting Like, yeah. there's no specific one that stands out to me. What what stands out to me are little moments of, oh, the Pacheco, and I don't know how much of this is Ellis and how much is Pacheco, but Pacheco has pulled from so many variations of these three that I ha- that I have seen before and some that he hasn't, that he's made up. And the ones that I've seen before, I can see that there is, there's a, ma- a maturation of, you know, what the nazi characters have become like they're the most i mean for better or worse they're probably the most notable of the doppelgangers from that you know from the cross time caper and they're here 
And we see that this is not exactly how Kitty and Kurt looked in that storyline. But I also see, you know, variations on previous Sprite and Ariel costumes that I find interesting because this is saying, look, this is who she will grow up into if left in that world. If Claremont had continued writing, if, you know, she had hooked up with the Star Jammers. Like, I like the short-haired Kitty outfit that becomes like sort of one of her distinctive looks in other runs right and probably my my favorite little detail that's thrown out there is Piotr says I was just attacked or I think it was Piotr maybe it was Kurt um I was just attacked by you using Wolverine claws oh yeah and that's like a detail of not only has she done that in some realities um in the uh, a reality that I don't know that I've ever read before so I won't mention it but (laughs) but like the fact that he is aware of it and the fact that it makes sense for her to have done that because she is a little girl who grew up idolizing Wolverine, of which she points out in this story. Like, Yeah, she also she, points out Cyclops, though, and that doesn't read for me. I, I thought that was a little weird. I, I find it okay only because, like, I don't, I, th- I think it's a little bit revisions. I think it's dated poorly. But I said before on this podcast, the reason I like this costume for Kitty is this costume represents a maturation for Catherine Pride the person to realize that even though she's grown up wanting to be, you know, I'm going to be my own woman. I'm going to be my own superhero. I'm going to make a costume out of spare parts that she, that she's felt like since she was 12 or 13 years old. Now she's 19. And basically she's the child soldier that Charles Xavier raised just like Scott. Like she's not exactly Scott, but the, the reason Scott and Kitty have the most X-Man-y of X-Man costumes is because they're the ones who have, most been embraced and sort of indoctrinated into the the professor xavier dream and i think at this point in her career kitty realizes that like i think she realizes that in some ways she's a lot more like scott than she would prefer to be yeah i guess i just i agree with andrew andrew though i just can't even think about a relationship that exists between scott and kitty because her relationship was with storm not scott yes so i just yeah. anyway i get as you said it's revisionist yeah. i mean i can accept it but it does read i get what he's going too. for it's not stated the yeah. best and it, it would yeah. yeah yeah i mean i was interested in the peter scenes like peter rasputin because yeah you have this toxic masculinity kind of storyline continuing with him right where a bunch of his doppelgangers are (laughs) painters right they're reading books they're painting they're doing (laughs) these very non-violent things with the exception of some of them that are you know cops and he has the interesting interaction with the cop one where he's like (laughs) i I want to read the line because it's like really funny it's one of those like real blatant like dialogue things that i'm just like sure you do you there it is A policeman? I've grown uncomfortable with authority figures over the last few years. Certainly can't see myself becoming one. <laughs> it's like, okay, you just got to stated <laughs> the plot there, but that's okay. I appreciate it. But like, yeah, I felt like the most character growth kind of happened with Peter in this issue in terms of setting up you know, who he is and that he's come through some of these toxic masculinity conflicts, supposedly, even though a bunch of this character growth happened off page, I do appreciate addressing it and trying to take him to another place. And I found like the most character work kind of went into that. Like Kurtz doesn't work. Well, actually, I do like Kurtz as well, but like, oh, I don't know. I'll let somebody else talk about it, though. I'll come back to you, Andrew, with, um, you know, obviously, as someone who knows these characters very 
well. Did any kind of of the doppelganger moments sort of work or not work for you other than the ones we've already talked about? I found them to be a little bit scattershot in general. Like it was just these sort of like quick moments that are maybe evocative. Like you mentioned the Colossus one. That's one that stood out to me. But Mm -hmm. I don't know. They they didn't feel really fulfilled uh, as Mm. sort of alternate universe explorations. Uh, Just sort of a lot of different directions. The idea of um, Kitty and Pete uh, as homeless alcoholics in an alley. (sighs) I just don't like it. Like, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, what? (laughs) It makes a lot of sense. So, so no, to me, it it felt like Ellis was just throwing everything at the wall uh, and seeing what stuck. So I, I like the concept uh, of the plot mechanism that we're working with. This, again, character revelation strategy through the doppelganger. But I, I don't think it had enough deliberation and intentionality behind it to really land the way I would. And the obvious comparison, or the way I would like it to, the obvious comparison here would be um, X-Men Annual 11, um, where they all get like these views of these other worlds and they're deeply revelatory. So it might just be that there's too many in play, or it might be that the story was a little confusing plot-wise. Um, it's also but short. For me, it's much shorter yeah, than the X-Men. I mean, it's, it's 22 it, it, pages, and you got to... It just didn't work. Out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, I would suspect that, I mean, the page that you're talking about, where it's like, you know, there's the scene in the alley, and there's the one with Kitty as a dominatrix, and then there's a weird one where they're religious figures, and I don't... I have a feeling Pacheco drew what he wanted to draw, and maybe they did a story <laughs> around that, because, you know, <laughs> we've had that on the book before, you know, we talked about that as our presumption for why Mountjoy was included, you know, maybe because Pacheco just wanted to draw him, and, you know, <laughs> he's a great artist, so, you know, <laughs> do what you want, but, yeah, I just, I I would suspect that some of those were kind of Pacheco, and then, you know, you just, like, go wild, draw what you want, but, I mean, I don't know, I'm just guessing, but, I don't know, I did want to talk about the Kurt one like a little bit but um maybe i'll come back to you about it daniel like did any of these interactions with the alternate versions work particularly well for you i know it's a bit hard because you're kind of coming in a bit new to some of these some of these characters in this context exactly i couldn't i mean i realize it's different versions right but i couldn't really place them what i like is when um uh you know the the different kurt characters at the end when they become like really menacing right they become like an army and they're descending on uh on our characters and um you know they have these demonic um yellow eyes um almost like zombies you could you you could read this again metaphorically like all you know how all of this um this 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 sprawl right the different characters the different versions they become a burden right if you want to tell a story um and they they can overwhelm or threaten these characters so i thought that was there was also some really cool um images there's this one where they there it's a panel where they're almost like a v v formation and they all have their swords drawn and they're just you know they're walking directly you know towards us so we're sharing being kind of antagonized here and then they're not fighting them right but they have to figure out they have to kind of logic their way out of the situation and um I don't really know how that works, but in the end, it's like poof, and they're gone. So, so, so it's a buildup in a way to a giant fight, but that doesn't take place. So it's kind of cool. Um, and of course, the idea in in like a closing issue for the run to have, in a way, the characters fighting themselves because they're fighting their doppelgangers yeah, is interesting, yeah. right? It's they're not fighting against you know a new supervillain or or supervillains we know, but they're fighting you know it's different versions of them fighting against each other. That's that's that makes for some interesting graphics, I think. Yeah, I do like the way the Kurt one subverts the expectation of the fight and I mean it's not perfect but I like the impulse that's happening here you know he's reckoning with the responsibilities of leadership and Kitty has that wonderful panel where she said you used to be happy I used to have a lot less responsibility if had to preside over such horror (laughs) 
I did also find it really funny that he does the list of things and like, you know, as we've discussed, 500,000 people, like half a million people died in the devil under London thing, but he reserves the swear word for having to talk to X-Man that one time. (laughs) That was the worst thing. It was like, yeah, my mom killed like half a million people in in London, but also, holy shit, that time we had to talk to Nate Gray, that sucked. (laughs) I mean, fair. I know. (laughs) But yeah, but he, he solves it not by fighting his doppelgangers, but by laughing, right? By rediscovering his joy. And again, I don't think it works perfectly, but I really like the impulse there, especially for the character of Nightcrawler, who's been so historically defined by embracing joy and sort of the heroism of embracing joy in a world that's always trying to hammer that joy out of you, right? And I mean, that's the context of the birth of this team, right? So I do like that circling back to that. And yeah, I I liked the impulse there. I liked it. I don't know, did we want to talk about Kitty's interactions with her doppelgangers at all? I mean, the main beat for her seems to be her struggle with her anger. And I thought that that was interesting as a character beat for Kitty. I don't totally disagree with it, but it's just even more broadly potentially interesting for this to be the conflict that a female character is dealing with because that's not necessarily standard but i was wondering if we had thoughts about that as a character beat for her go for it so i like it i think that it is not best dealt with in four pages on my way out the door because i that's what i was getting at with um with kitty coming to realize that she and Scott are not that different, which is not something they ever like. They they have they they really struggle with doing this on page because you know uh, she and Scott don't end up in the same teams very often. Not until relatively recently when they had the whole Scott and, and Logan fallout, and then she eventually leaves Logan to go to go with Scott. For the most part, Kitty spends the entire beginning of her career in comics trying to convince everybody that she's an adult and she deserves she belongs on the team and then once she's an adult trying to figure out who am i without the x-men that's what she's about in extreme x-men that's what she's about here in excalibur and i i like that she is coming to terms with these are the ramifications of growing up in a paramilitary outfit you know where your best friend's frankly are psychopaths you know like even i mean obviously wolverine right but even the good x-men you know like storm storm is a goddess incarnate as far as she's concerned and she's also violent andrew will Mm -hmm. tell you that like wolverine doesn't kill the most people like colossus her boyfriend has killed several people over over the course of the claremont run and then kitty you know essentially becomes a murderer you know it starts off with like where she's being terrified of the brood and she has to kill one in order in order to um you know in order to survive but like later on she's just you know when they're on on warlord planet kitty's like oh i guess i've gotta murder some people you know that's that's a thing that happens and she's an 18 year old girl 19 years old who's been doing this since she was a 13 year old girl and that's got to address that's got to have effects on your psyche which i like that ellis recognizes and i like that he has created her as a character with enough self-awareness to realize she has problems that she needs to work on I like believing that this is a that in this universe, if there's one person who's going to say, I'm going to work on myself and I'm going to address my demons and I'm going to make my problems better. It's Kitty Pride. It's just that doing that, you know, in four pages on your way out, <laughs> like because it's not it, it's necessarily not going to go anywhere. Right. Yeah. Like she's never going to actually have a better resolution other than 
oh yeah i guess maybe i do have anger issues you think you know but like mm-hmm. i that i i wish the entire run was about that almost i mean yeah like so much of our discussion around the sort of the last four issues i just keep thinking like i feel like he really was starting to get some of the character voices and yeah. i wish that some of the earlier stuff hadn't just been the pete wisdom show and we could have mm-hmm. been building this up more but i mean again partly that's coming into his own as a writer and i understand that but i just feel like these final few issues are really like oh this series just got good <laughs> i like wish we could have more of it but mm-hmm. instead we're coming to the end of it so i'm happy for what we get but it's a bit bittersweet as well i don't know i wanted to come back to you about it daniel because i know that you don't have maybe as an extensive history with kitty pride as we have but you've obviously written a lot of stuff about representation in this space i mean how did kitty's struggle kind of read to you within some of the things that we often talk about with female superheroes you know did you did the story feel conventional to you you? Did it feel a little bit different? Did it feel like a valuable story? Ah, it's a good good question. I was kind of struck by the opening, right, where we see her in bed, which would be kind of an opportunity to um, kind of show off her body and the comic doesn't really so we share this kind of intimate space but she's kind of you know she's holding on to her sheets like she's been dreaming you know something negative or you know just had a nightmare but it's not it's not eroticized um yeah when she gets up maybe a little bit and then um you know when she puts on for the first time when she puts on her her um costume i mean it's funny um you quoted this earlier when she says i refuse to cope with weirdness in my nightshirt and then she, she gets dressed but then we don't see her getting dressed right she's behind a door it almost looks like she's in one of those fitting rooms which is kind of funny and then when she comes out of course um she looks like pretty much a standard female um superheroine but that's yeah. not 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 emphasized right she's the one who's trying to figure things out um she's the one who's trying to bring logic as i think uh, some of you said earlier the 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 guys are just kind of slugging each other and she's trying to think her way through so i thought that was um that was a good way to do it and i mean i i agree that kind of her moment when she when she kind of comes to this self-realization when you can she kind of figures out you know what her what, what makes her who she is when she says, um, I became my own person. I never, ever gave into my bad side. I became the best I could. Um, there was something in all my alternate, some aspect of someone else or of my horrible temper that I'm always trying to keep hold of and so forth. That is um, a kind of a growth and a realization. I mean, it, it's, it doesn't get the space perhaps that it, that 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 it should get or that it deserves but on the other end if you look at this the page where she's um realizing that you can see like right next to that you know you can see like a you know a fight scene there's lots of action so 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 she gets mm-hmm. the moment of introspection and not so much the other characters so i think there is you know by not eroticizing her you know unnecessarily there's actually fairly few images if you just look through it where where you can kind of see her full body and the the, the typical kind of superhero and poses and by giving her this moment of introspection um and her being the one who's kind of the lead character and who's who's figuring things out who's being the mm-hmm. rational one in a way i think there is some 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 value to that definitely yeah and that's what struck me as well i mean i will say <laughs> it tries to have its cake and eat it too a little bit but you know whatever yeah, i'm yeah, fine yeah, with yeah. this because we get the alternate versions of her that are like a little bit more i mean particularly the dominatrix version of her but you know i'll allow it you know we gotta have the star trek mirror universe where everybody's a dominatrix for some reason 
<laughs> like it gives us some some space to to play with stuff so i'm gonna i'm gonna let it go on in this instance but yeah i i liked all those things about it too the way that she's sort of central in the narrative and the main protagonist here and again i think it's a memorable choice for ellis's final issue on the series well, let's go to that as a topic i want to get your thoughts andrew about the conclusion of this series and like how you felt about this particular way of concluding the ellis era like are you satisfied with this conclusion andrew i think ellis does a good job and we've talked about this for a few issues now or a few episodes now i think he does a good job of resolving some of his major character arcs I, I, a lot of credit there actually i would say plot no i don't think so i, I don't I actually don't think Ellis is very good at plot, even when he becomes a much stronger writer, in my humble opinion. I know there are a lot of people who really like him. It's just my read on it. And the idea of just, you know, leading into another story, that that kind of feels apropos uh, of his contribution to the Excalibur plot lines and characters, which doesn't shine so much. But again, his cultivation of Kitty and Pete, um, even a little bit Piotr, as we talked about, some of the stuff he's trying to do with Doug Locke, to some extent Moira. You know, I you feel his presence at the end of his run and i think that's interesting and again i think character is probably more important in excalibur always has been so i don't know mission accomplished there yeah i mean it is significant that he ends with an embrace between kitty and pete which i'm sure some people had feelings about but still having the reunion of the team i did enjoy at the end uh, despite the focus on on those two characters and his pet character in particular i'll come to you for it mav how did you feel about these final couple pages sort of as a resolution of the ellis run of excalibur hated it <laughs> um yeah it, um no it's literally just this i'm fine with it i actually like the book i don't like that the the insinuation on the you know we're gonna end this with this insinuation that much of what's happened in the last four or five issues was the machinations of Brian and fucking Piotr to get Pete Wisdom to say I love you? No. It's weird. I know. It's weird. I mean, I have ex-girlfriends. I want them to be happy, but I'm not involved. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> yeah. And it, it especially I'm not involved with trying to get the guy that I tried to kill a couple of months ago like peter rasputin tried to kill pete wisdom when he didn't even know him he collapsed his lung he put him in traction and now he's like no but we've been we've got this we've hatched this plan where i guess i'm to believe that like that like pete wisdom saying i love you doesn't actually have anything to do with saving the multiverse that brian was lying and this was all just a way to make kitty happy and it's it's gross. It's gross, and it's not the correct kind of toxic masculinity for either Brian or Peter. <laughs> like, that's, that's just, yeah. that's not a, not only is it a violation of Kitty, it's not even the right violation of Kitty. Like, that's not the way these two guys behave. They barely yeah. care about each other at all. Peter and Brian don't have a relationship. And Brian really did go to the future and see this Pete Wisdom thing that, like, from, it, it, it's a weird look. It's my last page, so I'm just gotta I just gotta seal this off somewhere. And that's the one place where the the good writing just absolutely falls apart for me. And I I I hate it so much because it feels artificial 
in a way that all the growth for these three characters that we've been talking about for the last hour don't. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to be generous about it because I like this issue as a whole, and I find the melancholy of the ending, I can fudge it for myself to make it work. Like, I sort of like the wait, it gets better, good night, except that wait, it gets better is specifically Kitty and Pete in the frame, and then the good night is a picture of them. Like having it specifically concluded that way is is tough. I do like the previous page where you get the hug with Megan and Kurt and Brian. That That little moment of them sharing that hug and the way she hugs him and brought like because I mean that's such a culmination of the interesting, complicated relationship that those three characters have had since Excalibur number one, right? So that I like, but then ending on Kitty and Pete instead of like a group hug or a group shot, you're just like, I see what you did there, Warren Ellis. I see what you did there. I mean, I'm okay with them wanting, he wants to tell the story of, and we did this so well, like three issues ago, two or three issues ago. He really wants to tell the story of, look, Kitty and Peter, Kitty and Piotr were never in the game. They were, you know, they were childhood sweethearts. And they've grown past this. And he wants to show that Kitty has an adult relationship now. And it's with this guy. And I'm okay with that. It's just weird in the way that it happens. So uh, a similar thing is the book explicitly tells us that Kitty and Pete Wisdom have their own bedrooms. And she sleeps in a twin bed. Mm. Despite the fact that we know they're having sex from previous from previous issues. She's like, oh, she wakes up from and and then she's like, oh, well, I've got to get to Pete's room, which should be across the hall. And why aren't you just sleeping together? Because we know, like, I, I guess this 19 year old girl and his and her 24 year old boyfriend routinely have sex and then go to their own rooms. Like, well, I read it. I read it as a comics code concession, but I'm not but sure. It's, but, it, but which would be fine, except that we know they're having like it literally mm-hmm. like, two issues ago. P- Piotr basically says, hey, you know, I heard you in bed with wisdom and I know, like, oh, I'm so I sorry. Know. Yeah. And then he's like, and he's like, no, it's fine. Don't like, like I get it. Right. So like there's an acknowledgement that she's sexually active with pete wisdom and this book has always you know brian and megan have been sleeping in the same bed since day one and in with her in 90s you know so like i have no problem with that being a thing when with brian and and megan why are they not allowing that for kitty it's weird it is a weird i mean and i guess it's so that they can have her not have to her have to go to pete pete's room to find him but i'd rather hey pete where's pete maybe he went back to his room that would make more sense. Yeah, yeah I did so- find it weird. Like, I don't find it that weird that they're trying to modulate it a little bit because of Kitty's unclear age. And I just, there's just a weirdness going on with this book. Not anyway. I get it maybe a little bit. Maybe he snores at night. Maybe, maybe he maybe. snores, right? And maybe. <laughs> maybe he needs <laughs> needs to go to the other room. I thought about the ending is, is interesting in a way because it's like the most anti-feminist ending you could think of, right? I mean, it's 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 the heteronormative ending right it's a heterosexual couple kind of being being united so i was tempted to read this somewhat ironically but i don't i don't think it probably is but if you think of it, like the stars and then there's kind of the moon and it, it's good night um and you see the silhouette but it could be like like everything she's developed kind of standing on her own kind of being the character who leads and then you know 
in this embrace in the end it's kind of it's kind of taken away again right because that's the that's the the most conventional ending you can have for a young woman's um it's not a coming of age story but but for a young woman's life right is to i mean they're not getting married but it's but it's 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 kind of getting in this direction so but then again maybe Ellis was also having fun, right? This is his last his last story, so he can kind of do whatever he wants. He doesn't have to follow up on the consequences. So maybe there's a bit of humor in there. I don't know. I don't know the series enough. Um, it's interesting that she says, uh, and Anna, you quoted this, wait, it gets better, which is interesting if you think about the series. Um, Ellis is not, not on it anymore, so it's a promise perhaps to readers that it'll still get better. I don't know. But at least there's there's stuff for you know, fans and readers to talk about, right? And if you, I mean, we're talking about this now, you know, in hindsight, you know, this, this is kind of long over, but if you, if you bought this when it came out, of course, it's a big question of, you know, how, how is it gonna, how's it gonna continue? What's gonna happen? I don't know if readers knew that somebody else was gonna take over, that this was gonna be the last issue, but there might've been some anxiety over how the story continues. And then this ending at least kind of makes people wonder, right? It, it, you know, it, it, it gets some discussion going, which is always a good thing because you want people to, to kind of to wander, even to, to criticize something, even to hate something could be good, right? I mean, there's lots of letters um, in the letter columns um, where people said, I hate this, but you want some kind of controversy. Yeah, I mean, I found that interesting too, Daniel, you know, the way it is kind of setting up the next writer, even as he's like clearly putting his stamp on it. And I can confirm too that readers would have been informed that uh, both Ellis and Pacheco were departing because it's discussed in the letter page of this issue and they have a little a little goodbye that they each wrote so it is something that they would have been aware of but yeah I mean I just want to underscore for our listeners too it's not that we're saying girls kissing boys is bad or something <laughs> it's more that like it's the emphasis I quite on enjoy this. it in fact yeah sure <laughs> I, me, me too I like kissing boys a lot but <laughs> well one particular boy but um but still it's like the concluding this story though that's been all about kitty as daddy was saying like standing on her own you know having this particular page this particular moment being the ultimate culmination of her entire character journey is the relationship with pete wisdom i think that's what we're talking about as being sort of an issue like to me if it was this and then you had another panel that shows the found family of excalibur and the complex bonds that exist within there even as she has the relationship with pete wisdom within that found family i would have been a lot more okay with it but again ending on that very traditional very antiquated as daniel was saying you know shot of the moon and kitty and pete embracing and having that be the culmination of this entire story arc i think that's what we're talking about as being a little bit disappointing you know kitty can kiss boys all that she wants but having it be the culmination of her character story that's what we're getting at when we're talking about problematic gender tropes right anyway um let's go to some final thoughts quickly to to wrap up our discussion do you want to get some do you want to get a final thought on the record Andrew two things really quickly we talked about good lines I like Nightcrawler saying spontaneous displays of affection are welcome oh so good that, that's a Kurt catchphrase right there that's that's so beautiful. good and then on the other side the Margali cage image I don't like I, I, I feel like that's clearly dipping its toe into the realm of misogyny and I'm someone who said before that I think Belasco is a character having him symbolically associate with, with sexuality and violence is probably important um, and I still don't like that image. So I guess my point is, I don't know that there's a good way to draw that image. Um, but yeah, that was that was a red flag. Yeah, I don't like that image. And I also, there's a lot of disturbing similar images when we revisit this story in what, X-Men Unlimited 19 or something. And yeah, I'm glad it's not just me, Andrew. Thank you. Okay. Mav, anything that you wanted to circle back to or bring up that we didn't get a chance to talk about? I will slightly underscore Andrew here and say, Velasco really like 
<laughs> I mean, I'm I'm a huge Ilyana fan, and this just feels like like I like that when Kurt and Kitty and Piotr show back up, they're just basically like, yeah, don't worry about us. We were just off having an adventure, no big deal, and moving on. Let's have a hug. Like I'm perfectly okay with that part of the ending. What I don't like is the page before it not just because of the misogyny but also Blasco's just there Blasco's not an antagonist for Ellis Blasco's not an antagonist for Excalibur he's not part of this story I don't know why he's there other than that he is sort of kind of nebulously connected to the soul sword which is sort of kind of connected to Margali who isn't really going to be a part of the story moving forward either. Like, I think Ellis thinks he's tying up a plot line, but he's not. I, I just, like, Belasco has no reason to care about any of these people. Like, yes, one version of Kurt is a minion of Belasco, but it's not this one. He doesn't care about this guy. He, he doesn't care about Kitty. Kitty is the best friend of someone who Belasco hates, but that person's dead. Like, like none, yeah. none of this is, none of this makes any sense. And he certainly doesn't care about Colossus. He has no reason to care about Colossus at all. Yeah, I, he's the sister of someone that Belasco hates, but she's dead. Like, none, I, I don't understand why he's involved in this. And, you know, when it ends, like, they don't seem to be very concerned with it either. They Like, they never even find out that it's Belasco, nor do they care. They're just like, hey, it was Tuesday, so we got shunted off to another dimension. And we solved it, so we're back now. And that's almost more satisfying. I don't know how that happened. That was weird. I, I'd rather be there than just have this, oh, yeah. by the way, also this thing thrown in my face. Yeah. I mean, it's like this tease for a future storyline, but we've read ahead and we know this is not going to be a satisfying story. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just putting a pin in. I'm going to be on watch for there's going to be a body switch between Margali and Amanda at some point. I'm still not sure when it happens. So this is our first signaling of the fact that it's going to happen at some point. Anyway, we'll be revisiting that a little bit as we, as we read on a little bit, not, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) we'll try to sort out that continuity. It's been bothering me for a decade, so we'll try. Uh, My final dumb thought was just going to be like, (laughs) we get Nightcrawler with horns on the front and it just reminded me of like a dumbass thing from comics this year where like Sea Spurrier did this version of Nightcrawler with horns and just really swore it was going to be a new permanent look for the character and everybody rolled their eyes and it was super annoying because yeah that guess what the character is back to his usual look now and it was the dumbest ass thing in the entire world yeah he's spider-man now because let's do that anyway i can't start (laughs) ranting about that (laughs) a comic that i hate read um anyway that was my negative final thought but uh, this version of nightcrawler with horns let's do it he's got the road road warrior shoulder pads i'm into it uh daniel coming to you for the final word on this issue anything that you would like to circle back to or any little thoughts that you didn't get a chance to get in now's the time yeah yeah what i kind of liked about this i mean i can't really talk about like what feels right and what feels you know wrong about the characters and about about the continuity what i like about the if you think of the kind of the page design and the page layout what Mm. i find interesting is that oftentimes you have these kind of panels overlaid over a white space in the background and 
it's it's pretty stunning how that how that how that works so there's a lot of white space almost like like these things are kind of pasted on so they're not normal gutters but there's some interesting i think it makes it would make sense to look at kind of the panel shapes and the panel spacing there's some interesting stuff going on there so i um in some cases i think um it works with a with a narrative so it kind of makes sense so uh, there, there's one image I think where two, uh, you know, two, two of the the Piotrs are are fighting, and kind of one of them is kind of bursting into the image, and then one of the the panels right next to it is is kind of a little out of whack. So it's mm-hmm. like it almost, you know, the page is shaking. So I think mm-hmm. there's some some worthwhile um, kind of graphic design um, basing, you know, u- using using the space of the page to tell the story. That's interesting that I you know haven't really looked into, but that kind of struck me as as interesting. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Was... The way he's kind of using his page design to communicate that surreal atmosphere that really came across yeah. to me too. We should have talked more about Pacheco. We've done a lot of Pacheco talk in previous episodes, so I'm glad you circled back to it. Cool. What must I do now? Kill them? I can tell you nothing. My days are ending. The gods of once are gone, forever. It's a time for men. It's your time. I need you now, more than ever. No. This is the moment that you must face at last, to be king alone. And you, old friend? Will I see you again? There are other worlds. This one is done with me. Anyway, we will wrap up our conversation there, saying goodbye to the Ellis era, other than to say, Daniel, thank you so, so much for being kind enough to navigate the confusion of time zones and join us today. We're so grateful. Um, Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of where they can find you and your past and present projects. So if you would like folks to find you online, whereabouts can they find you? And yeah, remind us again of your books and projects, anything you want our listeners to check out. Yeah, well, thanks so much um, to all of you for having me. It was uh, uh, great fun uh, talking to you about this uh, about this particular series and this particular issue. The easiest way to find me um, would be through my website, which is danielsteinresearch.com. Um, and there is a link to my university site that has kind of my whole profile. There's a bunch of stuff I've written that you can download from that site. Um, I'm also on Twitter at, uh, at the Daniel Stein. Very simple. So you can find me there. Um, of course, there's the, the book you mentioned at the beginning, Authorizing Superhero Comics on the evolution of a popular serial genre that's kind of my major kind of superhero work and you also mentioned um the book i'm kind of currently been saying i'm finishing this book for quite a while um i don't know some people might might have that experience as well but strange fruit and bitter roots black history and contemporary graphic narrative i'm trying to finish that this year um so it can come out maybe i don't know late 24 or early 25 it's not really on superheroes but it's about how comics and graphic narratives of maybe the last 20 or 30 years are coming to terms with kind of representing and acknowledging and accounting for you know black history um, in a medium that's not really made in a way or hasn't really been used to talk about these issues so i have you know a chapter on the middle passage and on slavery and there's lynching and there's so, so some very difficult topics but there's also you know kyle baker's in there um black panther of course um nadi okoafo's shuri i'll be talking about um the bitter root series 
Humphreys, David Walker, Chuck Brown, Sanford Green. So there's a lot of good stuff that I'm trying to kind of wrap my my head around and in a way combining my interest in comics and superhero comics with African-American history, black history, black literature, which is kind of one of my other research areas. So that's that'll come out eventually if I ever get to finish it but i think maybe maybe this year is the year when i when i finally wrap it up well that sounds awesome and i believe you have an award-winning essay that is related to some of those topics as well uh that i think won a comic studies society award last year if i'm not mistaken i think it was yeah you're right this was the uh, one of the honorable mentions um and it's on uh it's on difficult narratives of lynching and it talks about kind of the history of or the premise of superhero comics as kind of vigilante justice, right? Stepping mm-hmm. outside of the law and, and um, you know, taking people to task and, and that there's a certain logic in there that um, people like Kyle Baker in his Nat Turner graphic novel then pick up. Jeremy Love in his two um, Bayou volumes um, that came out with uh, DC Comics in the 2000s. Um, he also talks about that. So um, trying to trying to look at this kind of this difficult aspect of, of Black history and of American history and seeing how artists and comic book writers are trying to, I don't want to say get something positive out of it, but trying to acknowledge this history, but then also tell it in new and different ways. So it's not just about trauma and pain and suffering, which it is also about, but it's also about finding kind of a visual language to talk about these things and kind of make it present for, for kind of a younger generation of readers. Yeah, we... So many great scholars have talked about comics facility with representing the unrepresentable, right? And it seems like your work is very much in conversation with exactly. some of those, some of yep. those things. Anyway, th- we will definitely link that article for our listeners as a little preview of some of the stuff that you're working on. So yeah, just thank you so much again. Thank you guys. This was a lot of fun. Next, we start digging for answers about the truth of Doug Locke's origin in Excalibur number 104, Buried Secret, featuring some early Brian Hitch art, if that appeals to you. Um, looking forward to talking about art with that week's guest in any case. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, plus our holiday specials. You can find those via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, so let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Mav and Andrew, for another very conclusive convo. Thank you, Daniel, for mapping the multiverse with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. It, when you do the inserts of things, you need True Blood. It is the episode where Terry Belfort's character says, Bullshit, God has horns. <laughs> <laughs>